on your summer series. This is obviously my first opportunity to be here at Graber Road. As was mentioned, we've been in Houston now a little over a year and a half. Uh, we moved from Georgia. I owe Andy, though, because I invited him to our summer series as well. He actually kicked ours off. He was the first speaker. But unfortunately, at the time, and still, we weren't meeting in person on Wednesday night, so I had him do me a video. So he had to go through a little bit of extra prep and work. So I guess I owe him a little bit for that. Uh, but I'm glad to be with you. I have my wife and three of our four daughters. Our oldest one is married. She lives in Georgia. And we're grateful to be with you this night, uh, this evening. I love your theme for this summer series, What's So Great About Grace? You know, I, I, the reason I like it is this. I think sometimes we've allowed the religious world to steal this topic from us a little bit uh, because there's so much just confusion around grace and how it, it, it plays into salvation that we've kind of lost some of our love at times for just acknowledging how great God's grace is and being comfortable just talking about grace in a very open format. And I'm excited about that. And my specific assignment tonight is this. Grace motivates us. It instills within us this desire for good works. So I'm a rule follower by nature. He told me Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. I didn't know I could go outside of that. So we're going to be in Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, at least for part of our time tonight. We're, we're going to go other places. In fact, uh, we're going to do what I call Bible calisthenics. Get your fingers ready. We're going to turn to some scriptures tonight, all right? We're going to look at some different places in scripture. As you're turning there, I want to introduce you to Leon Harris. Leon is a strength trainer in Toronto, Canada. And in January of 2018, he was playing a pickup game of basketball, much like he had done many times before. Now, Leon is a big man, six foot four, 220 pounds, extremely athletic. And on this particular night, as they were playing basketball, he went to do something that he had done many times before. They were on a fast break heading down to the other end of the court and the point guard had the ball and he went to lob it up for him to catch an alley-oop to slam dunk it as a part of the game. Well, something happened though this night that was a little bit different, turned out to be a lot different for Leon. As he went to press off of his plant foot and elevate for the alley-oop, he felt this intense pain in both of his legs. And he just, when he landed, he just crumbled to the floor. He couldn't move his legs, he couldn't walk. They get him to the emergency room and he, they took x-rays and they had what they would call bilateral tendon rupture. So let me try to explain that for you. Basically take your kneecaps and put them about six inches higher in your leg than where they should be. The tendons that hold both of his kneecaps in place, it's as if somebody had taken scissors and completely clipped the tendon entirely in two, completely ruptured both. He couldn't walk, couldn't move his legs. They had to take him to surgery. They cut open his knees. They moved the kneecaps back into place. They reconstructed the tendons and put them back together. But he was in a wheelchair, couldn't walk for almost six weeks. A man whose life was defined by strength training, his muscles began to atrophy in his legs because he couldn't use his legs. And ultimately, finally, after about six weeks of time, he was able to stand for the first time. And he would chronicle this story of his rehabilitation and how difficult it was to learn to walk again. Something that he had taken for granted for so long. But he literally had to retrain his muscles. And in fact, he had to learn movements that he, he never had to do before because, you see, his knees and his legs would never be the same after this particular injury. Now you might be thinking, what on earth does that have to do with Ephesians 2, 8 through 10? Well, there's an interesting word found in the book of Ephesians and it's the word walk. And Paul uses this word in the book of Ephesians to help demonstrate the lifestyle that defines a Christian. Let's go to Ephesians chapter 2, beginning in verse 8. 
this evening. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand. Now listen to this last phrase, that we should walk in them. I want us to anchor to this word walk by way of our study tonight. And what I want us to think about is this idea, the road to good works. Now, I enjoy interaction. So if you have comments that you want to add, I'm going to pose questions. I would love for you to respond. I know we have folks watching online, so I'll do my very best that if comments are made, I'll repeat those for your benefit. But I'd like for your participation in the class if you're comfortable. And if you want to make a comment and need to get my attention, raise your hand, throw a songbook at me, whatever you need to do to get my attention so that we can all benefit from each other. I want to start with this question for you, though. When you think about the idea that you and I have been called in some ways to this idea of good works, what thoughts enter your mind when you think about good works? What are some of the first things that come into your mind when you think about this phrase, good works? Visiting the sick. All right, I love it. Excellent one. Visiting the sick. What else? Care for widows and orphans. James would say that's true in pure and undefiled religion, right? To take care of the widows and the orphans. Great comment. What else? Meeting the needs of your community. Did I get that right? Good one. Meeting the needs of your community. That's a big one. I'm gonna t- so here's, here's an interesting th- fact. Younger people, one of the great things about millennials, they love to serve. They are service-oriented. And we ought to have the market cornered on that, shouldn't we? Because that's what, as Christians, we're to do. But here's the catch. They don't want to hear us talk about it. They want to see us doing it because they're action-oriented. So serving the needs of our community, that's a great one. What else? Any other thoughts? Appreciation of grace. I like that. So here's what's interesting. You did exactly what I did when I got this topic. My mind started going to the idea of the good works, right? They're things that we do, aren't they? What I want us to do tonight, though, is I want us to dig a little bit deeper. Because, you see, what we have to be careful of is that when we think of good works, is it's not somehow this checklist that we engage in. It's not something that, that we think of in terms of, hey, I've done my good works, now what's next? Because, you see, there's a lot more to that when it comes to our response to God's grace. And I believe as we look at the book of Ephesians, what we're going to find as we continue on past chapter 2, verses 8 through 10, a theme that Paul provides for us that might help us get to the why. Might help us get to the why. I saw a talk several years ago called Know Your Why. Maybe some of you have heard that concept before, but the idea behind the talk was this. You and I do things in life, and it's important for us to understand why. What's the why behind what we do? Why do you work the job that you work? Why do you get up in the morning and go do some of the things that you do? You see, when you and I really start digging, there's a why behind everything that we do. Maybe we get up in the morning and we engage in our job because we're trying to provide for our families. Maybe we're carrying on a family business. Maybe there's a a bigger goal maybe that we have individually that we're aiming for, but we all have a why. And I want us to get to the why behind the good works. Because if we can get to the why and understand that, I believe what we'll see is the good works is just the outpouring of what should be natural for us as children of God. So let's begin our journey together. You know, our journey begins by just learning to walk. 
From a little child, a baby doesn't know how to walk. It's something that they have to learn. Leon Harris, as he recovered from his surgery, he had to learn to walk. And the first thing I want us to consider is this. We've got to understand the need. In order for us to appreciate Ephesians chapter 2, beginning in verse 8, we really need to go back to verse number 1. So let's go back. Ephesians chapter 2, let's begin in verse 1. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, there's our word again, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. That's pretty harsh language, isn't it? I don't know about you, but, but I don't particularly enjoy thinking of myself in this particular light. I, I don't particularly enjoy thinking of the fact that at one time I was living in the passions of my flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. I don't like thinking about the fact that I was dead in trespasses and sins. And that's what once defined my life. That's how I once walked. But Paul says something very interesting. He says, among whom we all once lived. Paul didn't hesitate to put himself in that bucket. And I think it's important, if we're going to understand God's grace and fully appreciate it, we have got to take time to recognize who we were prior to that opportunity to access God's grace. Because you see, that starts getting to our need to learn how to walk because something happened to us. Just like Leon Harris suffered that bilateral tendon rupture, there was something that fundamentally happened in our lives that caused us to have this need to learn how to walk again and what happened was we understood our need for God's grace we understood what our lives were and would be separate and apart from God's grace Proverbs chapter 16 and verse 5 would say this everyone who's arrogant in heart is an abomination to the Lord be assured he will not go Unpunished. You see, at the root of all of these sins, really, if you start digging down deep, is the issue of pride. It's the issue of being arrogant in heart. You and I might put it a little bit more, I want it my way. It's about me. And again, I don't enjoy thinking of myself that way. I'll share a little bit about me briefly, and, and I do this hesitantly, because you might start making mental images of what kind of person I am, but that's okay. I'm an only child. My wife is smiling because, see, she knows things about me. It doesn't show up a lot, but there are times it shows up in my life, all right? And when it does show up, it kind of shows up with this it's about me attitude because I didn't grow up in a household learning how to share. So that's why we had four kids. We were going to make sure our kids never struggled with that. So that's really not it. But anyway, at the heart of sin is this pride issue. It's about me. The Proverbs writer would go on to say this in Proverbs 16, 18, and 19. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. It is better to be of a lowly spirit with the poor than to divide the spoil with the proud. There's just something fundamentally against God's word and against God's nature to be prideful. 1 John chapter 2 and verse 16. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and what? The pride of life. It's not from above, it's not from the Father, but it's of the world. 
This nature, understanding our need to learn to walk, is rooted in the fact that all these things we were, separate and apart from God's grace, were a part of the world. So as we learn to walk, we've got to understand the need. But understand as much as there was a need, there's this opportunity for radical transformation. Stay in Ephesians chapter 2 with me. You ever heard, what's, what's the one word you should not use if you're paying somebody a compliment or if you're issuing an apology? My wife will tell you, if she and I ever have a disagreement and I need to apologize, which is most of the time, there's one way I can ruin that apology with a three-letter word. But, see, I didn't have to tell you, did I? You knew, wasn't it? What does that word do? When you use that word, it does what? Doesn't it, though? It negates everything. I like that outfit on your butt. It automatically, doesn't matter, whatever follows next just completely eliminates everything. Honey, I'm sorry that, that I left my clothes on the floor, but it eliminates everything you just said. Well, here's what's great about Ephesians chapter 2. Look at verse 4 with me. But God, everything that Paul had just written in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, is about to be erased. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved and raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Isn't that a beautiful passage? Isn't that an amazing scripture to think about? Here's who we were. Here was our incredible need based on the sin in our lives. Here's everything that was wrong with us. But God, enter God into the picture. God's able to erase all of that. Why? Because of His rich mercy, His great love, ultimately by grace. You and I have the opportunity to be something different. With that, though, comes a responsibility. Let's focus for just a few moments on verses 8 through 10 again. For by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it's the gift of God. All right, I'm going to go back to the only child thing. I like getting a gift. I think most of us kind of enjoy that, don't you? There's something neat about just getting a gift from someone, especially when it's something maybe that you know you don't deserve. Maybe it's just a, a, a because I love you gift or maybe you accomplished something important in your life and maybe it's important to you and somebody goes out of their way to recognize that and celebrate that with you. There's something incredibly rewarding about those opportunities, isn't there? But there's something also unique about a gift. Do you have to accept it? Nope. Somebody could give you the best gift in the world. It could be the, the most valuable gift that anyone has ever received. But if you don't take that gift and either open it or take it and use it, it's of no value to you whatsoever. You see, everybody that is given a gift has a choice about whether to accept that gift or to reject it. Same thing is true with God's grace. You see, God's grace is His gift to us. I love the image of God's part is His grace. It's as if He was reaching down from heaven, handing us this incredible gift of His grace. But our responsibility to accept that gift, to take it, to use it, is us reaching back up to Him through what? Faith. Isn't that what Paul said? You have been saved, you have, uh, for by grace you have been saved through 
faith. God's part, this gift that He has extended down to us. Our part, reaching up to accept that gift to take it. And what is biblical faith? Hebrews chapter 11, what we commonly refer to as faith's hall of fame. All these incredible examples of heroes in Scripture. Heroes that, that exemplify what biblical faith is all about. And in every single case, what was their faith defined by? Obedience, action, every single time. You could go back through that chapter and you can find a verb in almost every single example of these individuals where they responded to God through obedience. That's what biblical faith is. It's not just an intellectual knowledge and understanding of God. It requires a response because that's how God made us. So our part in this grace is faith. But notice what it says, and we need to make sure that we completely understand this. It doesn't matter how much faith we have, separate and apart from God's grace, it means nothing. You and I sitting here tonight can affirm with everything in us, we are 100% entirely saved by God's grace. Nothing we can do separate and apart from that to be saved. Nothing. Paul makes sure that we understand this gift that God has given. Your response of faith, as important as that response is, it still doesn't mean salvation is because of your own doing. It's ultimately the gift of God. Why? Because if it's something that we could do to earn, we'd get a little prideful about that, wouldn't we? Look what I've done. I've made it. I did it. I've done the things that God expected me to do, and I've got salvation. See, Paul wanted to make sure that that wasn't what was possible. For we are his workmanship. Genesis chapter 1, the creation chapter, details for us the incredible work of God's creative power. The pinnacle, the pinnacle of that creation. Genesis chapter 1, 27 says that he made man how? In his image. It's more than just the fact that you and I possess this soul that is eternal in nature after God creates us. It's more than the fact that we can live with Him for eternity. You see, there are attributes that God possesses. Love, grace, mercy, holiness, righteousness, justice. We could go on and on with these attributes that God possesses. And He possesses them in the absolute fullest capacity, the perfect capacity. But guess what? He made us in a way that you and I can share in those attributes made in His image, reflecting Him to others. You and I can show love. We can demonstrate grace and mercy and kindness and justice, holiness. We can't do it the way God does it. We can't do it perfectly as God does it perfectly. But you see, we are His workmanship. We are His masterpiece, you might say. I think Andy mentioned, in, as he was reading about our family, our middle daughter, Ashley, she is majoring in art. And, and fine art is one of her majors. She's dual majoring at Fried Hardeman. And so she's painting. That's part of what she's doing. And she's got some paintings already. And there's a couple that with where she's at in her abilities right now that she would call her masterpieces, right? That she's proud of, that she's done a great job on. And they just mean a little something extra her, to her compared to some of the other works that she's done. You see, that's us when it comes to God's creative power. We are His masterpiece. There's something special about us relative to the rest of creation. And so as we think about this learning to walk, 
There's understanding the need. There's understanding the transformation. And because we are His workmanship, we are created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand. It's always been God's plan that you and I, that mankind would engage in these good works. Why? Because we reflect Him. We are like God and we present His image to those that we come in contact with. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 17 talks about the fact that in Christ all things have become new. The old has passed away, the new has come. There's this responsibility that comes along with God's grace that relates to good works. So then, how does that journey proceed? As we learn to walk, we accept God's gift of grace through faith. That that faith is demonstrated by submitting ultimately to baptism. Where we are joined with Christ, Romans 6 would talk about. And we are buried and raised with Him. And as we are raised, now we have to learn to walk again. You see, we can't walk the way that we did, like was described in Ephesians chapter 2, beginning verse 1 through 3. We can't walk like that anymore. That can no longer define our life. So there has to be this new way to walk. And as we learn to walk, the first thing we need to learn is how to walk worthy. Because you see, as we learn to walk worthy, what we're going to see is these good works will just be a natural outpouring. Stay in Ephesians chapter uh, Ephesians with me. Now let's go to chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 1. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk, there's our word, in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. I hope we all understand, you and I have been called by Christ. Every one of us in this room has a calling. And that's a word, again, that's used in the religious world sometimes, and it's used in a variety of different ways, but there is a biblical way that you and I need to use that word. How have you and I been called? If you were trying to explain to someone that you've been called as a Christian, how would you do that? How would you explain that terminology? Let's think about this first maybe. How would you define called? What does it mean to be called? Okay. Okay, so the abilities, the gifts that you've been given that you can do for other people, that those are part of your calling, right, that, that you've been called to. I love it, good one. What else? A purpose outside of yourself, okay? You've been called for something that's bigger than you, that's greater than you, outside of you. I like that. Tell you, you were asked to do... Okay, I like that. You've been asked to do something. Let's, let's keep that phrase in mind. So the comment was we've been asked to do something. Go to John chapter 1 with me. The Gospel of John chapter 1. John chapter 1, let's begin in verse 36. The next day again, John was standing with two of his disciples... And he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? And he said to them, Come and you will see. 
So they came and saw where he was staying and they stayed with him that day for it was about the 10th hour. What was Jesus' invitation to them? In verse number 39. Come and see. Yeah, that was Jesus' invitation to them, right? And if we were to continue on in chapter 1 as Jesus calls Philip and Nathaniel, what's the more common phrase that's the invitation that Jesus extends? Follow me. You see... We've got to walk worthy by fulfilling our calling. To be called simply means that Jesus has extended this invitation to us. That's how you and I have been called. We've been asked to do something. He has extended this invitation. He's called us. In essence, He has said, come, follow me. Come and see. The Great Commission, Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 through 20. We are to go and do what? Make disciples, create disciples. That's us, isn't it? That's what we have been called. We've been extended this invitation to discipleship. What does it mean to be a disciple? A follower of Christ. Think back to our devotional period, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 21. We are to follow His example. We're trying to model our lives as much as we possibly can to look like Jesus. In every aspect of our lives. So walking worthy begins with this understanding that we've been extended this incredible invitation by Jesus that says, follow me. Come and see. Get to know me better. Come and see if I'm the real deal. That's in essence what he did in John chapter 1. They were curious. They had questions. John the Baptist had said, behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. And here are these disciples of John the Baptist that are looking for the Messiah. They're following John the Baptist. Could this possibly be him? Is this really the one? What's Jesus' response? Come and see. Jesus never expects anybody to follow him with a blind leap of faith. That's not biblical faith. Biblical faith is based upon evidence that can be examined to determine whether it's true or false. And Jesus himself says, I'm extending you this invitation You come and see if I am who I am. And if I am, then you follow in my steps. You fulfill your calling. But as we think about walking worthy, we're fulfilling our calling by following Jesus. And that means that we've got to fulfill our relationships as well. Chapter 4, verse 2 of Ephesians. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. Boy, that's a high calling, isn't it? And how you and I should live in every relationship that you and I could ever encounter. We should live those relationships with humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. Leave your marker here in Ephesians chapter 4. Turn with me to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. The book of Philippians, it's an interesting book. Paul has this incredibly special relationship with the church at Philippi. And there's a lot in the book about joy. In fact, that's a major word used throughout the book. At the close of the book, in Ephesians chapter 4, we're introduced to these two ladies, Euodia and Syntyche. And we don't know exactly what, but there's some type of disagreement that's going on between these two ladies. It's my personal opinion that I don't think it's anything doctrinal. Because Paul would always address any type of doctrinal issue that existed within the church. There's not a a letter that he wrote that I'm aware of where he would ignore an issue that existed doctrinally. 
I tend to, to believe that more than likely what's going on with these two, uh, between these two ladies is a disagreement that's really ultimately a matter of opinion. But what can happen sometimes when those types of disagreements start to fester? People take sides, don't they? And when that happens, you can split relationships, but you can split a church in a hurry with disagreements over strictly matters of opinion. And I think Paul addresses that whole idea in the book of Ephesians. There's another interesting word found in, or in the book of Philippians. There's another interesting word found in this book, and it's the word mind, M-I-N-D. And that word means attitude. It has to do with attitude. Philippians chapter 1, let's start in verse 27. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Paul says, I want you to live a life that's worthy of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, the gospel. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? That sounds very similar to Ephesians chapter 4. Walk worthy of your calling. What's our calling? It's an invitation to follow Jesus. So Paul is about to challenge them to have this manner of life that's worthy of the gospel of Christ. Now notice how chapter 2 verse 1 starts. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy, how? By being of the same mind, there's our word, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Now here's the key. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. That's the key. That's the key ultimately to the type of attitude that Paul says will lead to a healthy church that can resolve a conflict potentially between these two ladies, Euodia and Sintiki, but even beyond that, that can resolve personality conflicts in any aspect of life. There's an attitude that needs to permeate God's people. And it's an attitude of others before self. Paul would go on to give the ultimate example here in Philippians chapter 2 of an individual that demonstrated that mindset more than anybody that's ever walked the face of this earth, and that's Christ. Christ demonstrated that mindset. Now I want you to go back to Ephesians chapter 4 with me. And I want you to think about how can you and I walk worthy as we're learning to walk a lifestyle that's going to lead us to a life where we are active in producing good works. we got to begin walking in a manner that is worthy of the calling with which we've been called. And we have to make sure that how we treat each other in our relationships leads to humility and gentleness with patience, bearing with one another in love. How on earth do you get to a lifestyle like that? How do you love people that are hard to love? How do you deal with people that are just grumpy and irritable and seem disagreeable about everything? You adopt this mindset that Jesus had that elevates others before us. That's ultimately what biblical love is all about, isn't it? It's a love that looks at somebody else and says, I care more about you and your needs than I do mine. That's how we walk worthy in a way that fulfills our relationships. But not only this, we need to walk in a manner that's worthy in order to fulfill our unity. Verse 3, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. 
And then he, Paul would go on to, to list these ones that make up this unity or the bond of peace, the things that you and I should be unified around. But we've got to understand that as we walk worthy, as we're going to walk a road, a path that leads us to living a life that is demonstrated by good works based upon God's grace, we walk in a manner worthy of our calling. And a key aspect of that is walking as a unified body of God's people, making sure that Satan in no way comes between us. Because you see, as Satan comes between us, that's going to hinder any ability that you and I will ever have to do good works. Because what will happen then is we start to get selective with the what and the who that we're doing the good works with. But when you and I are unified the way that Christ wants us to be unified, those good works are just going to be an outflow of our life as a church body. The most beautiful prayer that you and I have ever had insight into is the prayer that Jesus pr prayed prior to his crucifixion in John chapter 17. We are given this intimate moment where we are able to look into the mind of Christ and we're able to see him pray for several things. And at the end of that prayer, one of his prayers that he prays is actually for you and for me. He prays for all those that will believe. Now, if that doesn't put chills up your body to think that Jesus prayed for you and for me specifically, but what did he pray for for us? That we may be one as he is one with the Father. You see, there is this flow that originates with God in the relationship that God and Christ had. And their relationship was perfect in every way. There was this oneness that resided. Everything Jesus did reflected the Father. Everything Jesus did submitted to the Father. But that flows and continues on now through the relationship that you and I have with Jesus. And you and I are to demonstrate that same unity in our lives. Why? So that the world might believe who Jesus is as we begin learning how to walk and we take those first steps toward a path or a road to good works, it's learning to walk worthy of the calling to which we've been called. Discipleship, modeling Christ in every aspect of our lives, in our relationships, in our unity as a church body. But then I want you to think about this. As you and I take those first steps, as we begin that journey down that pathway and we gain our strength and that muscle atrophy begins to disseminate and those muscles in our legs begin to form in our spiritual legs. You and I now start to walk in love in everything that we do. Let's look, Ephesians chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us. And gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. If you and I are going to walk in love, though, there's something we have to avoid. We've got to avoid the dark. Verse 3, But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. But instead, let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partakers with them. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. This is not meant to be 
some checklist that if you and I can avoid these few things, we've somehow avoided darkness. They are meant to characterize the lifestyle of people that live and walk in darkness. But I want to pose this question to you because I think there's something interesting. Why do you think Paul chose sexual sins to illustrate darkness? I mean, that's, that's basically, I mean, there's a couple of other things intermingled in here, but the focus of what he just described had to do with sexual sins. Can you think of any possibility why Paul might have chose those as an example of darkness? Especially after he's already talked in chapter 4 about walking worthy of our calling and the way our relationships should be and the unity that God's people should demonstrate. Can you think of any sin that is perhaps more selfish than sexual immorality? Isn't ultimately sexual immorality all about me and my desires? What satisfies me, what gratifies my earthly desires? Sexual sin perhaps demonstrates more vividly than any other sin a disrespect for somebody else and a more of an emphasis on me and my wants, perhaps than any other sin. Well, I know people can try to hide it and say we're in love, but ultimately it's a failure to fulfill God's plan for a healthy sexual relationship in marriage and not being willing to take the commitment that God says. And ultimately it's a sign of saying, I care more about me and what I want. You see, that's darkness. First John chapter 1, Paul would talk, or John would talk about how God is light, and in Him is no darkness at all. None. Not even the smallest speck that you and I could ever imagine. God can have absolutely nothing to do with darkness because of why? He's holy in every way possible. It's been said, I don't know who originated this, it's been said that light is the only purifying agent that can purify without becoming contaminated itself. And I think that may be true. If you think about it, you, if we darkened out this, this room, and we took every light bulb out of the room, and it was pitch black, and we put a light bulb in, it would illuminate the darkness, wouldn't it? But it doesn't absorb the darkness, does it? You could take that light bulb out, you could use it somewhere else and do the exact same thing over and over again. That's fascinating to think about now, isn't it, when it comes to Christ? John chapter 8, I think it's in verse 12, Jesus would say, I am the light of the world. If we're going to avoid the darkness, we've got to seek the light. All right, I want to make sure I'm not going over. I know there's supposed to be two bells. Have they rung yet? They have wrong, so I'm at my conclusion, right? I, boy, I totally missed those. All right, I'm glad I stopped and asked. Y'all are going to start throwing songbooks at me. All right, let me close this out with these two thoughts then, all right? We've got to seek the light. Jesus in John 8, verse 12 says, I am the light of the world. If we're going to avoid the darkness, we have to do everything we can to seek Him and look for Him. And as we do that, we're going to strive to be wise. Paul would continue on in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 15. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of their time. And then he would compare being drunk with wine versus being filled with the Spirit. You see, if we're going to walk wise, then we have to stay focused on Christ. We've got to stay focused on these words here. Now, what does all of this ultimately have to do with this idea of the road to good works? You and I have been called to a calling Let's go back to our text, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. We are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which, prepare, were prepared, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. 
if you and I want to live our lives, our good works are not a checklist that you and I engage in. We are dedicated to Christ and being like Him in every way possible. So we walk worthy of that calling and we walk in love. And the natural response of our lives to Him and to God's grace, it naturally flows that we engage in these good works. It's not a matter of, do I have to go to Sunday night? Do I have to go to Wednesday night? It's not a matter of, do I have to go visit the sick? Do we have to do this? It's a matter of, when do I get to worship? When do I get to open my Bible and study? When do I get to be with my church family? Who needs help? Who can I visit? Who can I make a meal for? Why? Because we recognize what God has done for us by His incredible grace extended to us that saves us from sin. Let's pray together. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank You for this opportunity this evening to study from Your Word. Father, we pray that as we live here on this earth, you would help us to recognize the incredible responsibility we have to live for you. Help us, Father, to help our lives be shaped to look more like Jesus every day of our lives. Help us to see him and his example and to follow in his footsteps to the very best of our ability. And as we do that, Lord, help us to have this natural outflow of good works in our lives. Not because it's an obligation, not because we're trying to look to some checklist, but, Father, because we simply love you and want to recognize how good you've been to us in the way that we live and treat others. We're so thankful for Jesus, for the cross, and all that it means to us. Please help us to live every day for him. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Appreciate your attention this evening. Thank you.